J リー実況ウィニングイレブンこんにちはジョン・カビラです今日も暑くなりそうですさあガンバ大阪対ベルディ川崎始まりました This is the Football Kit Podcast, and we welcome you to episode 17. I'm Les of Hull City Kits. I'm Gav, also known as the Kit Geek. And I'm Dennis from Museum of Jerseys. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the J League's inaugural season, and that warrants the consideration of the best and worst of the competition's kits. So, for this task, we've enlisted the support of Ben Mabley. Japanese language co commentator and analyst for J Sports and Dazone, and the man popularising Taunton Town in the land of the rising sun. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. How are you all doing? Good. Oh, good. good. So, Ben, the path from Taunton to Osaka translator to commentator isn't a well trodden one. What set you down that path? Yeah, I'm probably the only one to have trodden it, I suppose.、Um, it was basically two distinct interests that kind of coalesced when, when I ended up staying in Japan a bit longer than I'd originally intended. I decided and announced to my parents and teachers when I was about 10 that I was going to be a football commentator, largely because I, I was quite good at school and I liked, but I liked football more and I knew that I wasn't good enough deep down to become a Premier League goalkeeper. I could just about pass the mustard at primary school level in,、um, in Somerset, but I, I knew I wasn't going to go much beyond that. Talking about football was what I got in trouble. For during classes. So I thought, okay, if I can make a job out of that, then being a football commentator is, is a good career to take. So that's what I decided upon. But also, I was interested in Japan as well. And without then necessarily being an obvious education path towards the career I wanted to do, I decided to at university study something else that I was interested in. I saw that you could do degrees in Japanese, and that's what I chose to do. I came to Japan as part of that. Ended up by chance in the city I live in now, Osaka. Loved it there. Decided after graduating that I wanted to live in Osaka, didn't care what I did. So I did. So I moved back and I got a job as a translator using my degree and then thought I was going to be there for two years. Two became three, became four. And thought, right, well, if I am going to stay here a bit longer, then I have to find my way back onto the career path that I wanted to, to get onto. So I started working from home, doing Any football related job I could get on the side for little or no money. Sometimes, you know, you do work for the exposure, which is a terrible, terrible thing, and, you, and employers and publishers shouldn't exploit freelancers in that way. But I mean, sometimes it, it, does, it does work, and eventually it got me noticed by a TV producer who invited me onto a show which I started doing 11 years ago. And then after doing that for a couple of years, I was able to make that the main job and, and drop the translation and, and get more TV and commentary. and Analysis work through that. 
Ben, you know, sometimes you, you might see a clip from, say, French or Spanish football and you'd hear the occasional English term peppered in. Are there any English terms that are used in Japanese football coverage? There are loads because, so football, as we were talking about uh, in the introduction, J the J-League is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. And it's really only been part of popular culture, football as a sport. It's only been part of popular culture really for that time. In the past, you had the famous manga, Captain Tsubasa, and there were part, times in the past where the Japan Olympic team quite successful, but really as, as a... As an organic part of popular culture, it's a relatively recent thing. And so borrowing into the Japanese language happens quite a lot anyway from it from English. And so it was quite natural for, for Japanese to take English terms and and just use them. There's, there's a phonetic syllabary called katakana, which you can use to write English or other foreign words. And so you have to fit it into the consonant vowel, consonant vowel structure of Japanese. And so it changes the pronunciation a little bit. There's a lot of Japanese terms. Unfortunately, sometimes there's a word that sounds like it's English and it's based on English, but it doesn't necessarily mean exactly the same thing because it's been slightly misinterpreted or it's mean or it's given a meaning more specific in Japanese than it originally was in English or the other way around sometimes, or it's been incorrectly neologized. Is that a word? I might have just neologized that. A recent one is you're underlapping fullback. Now, underlap does exist as a Japanese word, but more commonly people here say inner lap because they got the outer, inner, over, under pair wrong. And <laughs> tweeted about that the other day and got, it got a huge reaction because I said, look, if you if you are basing this on English, then really it should be underlap. And they were like, really? Oh, my God. And now I, I had like actual <laughs> commentators apologizing to me. It's like, you, you could have just asked. I'm, I'm sitting next to you. <laughs> but yeah, there are there are a lot of. English language words. One that really confused me when I first started working here was Baitaru area, which is based on the English for vital area. And people would talk about this as if it clearly had a, a very distinct definition. And if you didn't know what that meant, you, then you obviously don't know what you're talking about with regard to football. I think, well, I know what vital means. I know what area means, but I don't know what area you're talking about and what you think is the vital. <laughs> it just happened to be one that was used in Japanese technical language in about the 1990s that are kind of stuck for the kind of the 20 yards in the centre of the pitch just outside the penalty area. But they're given that a very specific <laughs> name that sounded like English and sounded like something I should know and, and didn't. So, yes, there's a lot. There's a lot of English in the Japanese football vocabulary, but it doesn't always mean what you might think it's going to. And that's it from the Transliteration Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you commentate mainly on the Premier League and European competition, but you, you live in a, a prefecture that's home to two of the, the ten founding members, is it? Two of the earlier 90s members, yeah. Okay. And you're you're a fan of, of Gambo Osaka, is it? Yeah, that's right, yep. Yeah. Okay. So obviously you're you're certainly more exposed to the J League than we are in Cork, Kent, or Hull. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I don't have the same. Well, actually, maybe I do have the same in difficulties now with in terms of time difference because I'm working mainly on the Premier League, and so yeah, no, we're recording on Tuesday, the fourth of April. I'm commentating tonight on Bournemouth against Brighton, which is a three thirty a.m. kickoff my time and so you know I, I naturally have to shift my lifestyle pattern a little bit towards UK European time not a hundred percent but to, to a degree and I'm often traveling on the day of J-League games and so it means when 
because the J League goes through the calendar year, so there are matches in the summer when the when the European football season stops, and then I can go. But when the when the two seasons are clashing, it can be quite difficult to go to both. But yeah, as a student, I started going to Gamba games in two thousand and three. I was then sort of invited in to join the ultras who then became the subject uh, well partly the subject of my university dissertation and had a really great and interesting time sort of having one foot in one foot out with them over over a period of of years trying trying to learn about a certain part of japanese society that goes unnoticed or unmentioned sometimes because they're sort of rebelling against the the norm and they're using football to do that as as ultras and hardcore fan groups do in in other parts of the world as as well so that was that was quite fascinating and yeah um kansai the western part of japan is very big on baseball hanshin tigers are by far the biggest sports team in in that side of the country but when the j league was first founded there was only one Kansai team that was Gamba and so the people who liked football in the first place they all gathered there whether they were from Osaka or from Kyoto or Kobe or wherever and then gradually the other teams in the other cities got founded and the the kind of the more the lighter fans I suppose maybe them what shifted to their local teams whereas the real hardcore changing your team was something you couldn't possibly do and so there was a very distinctly more fervent atmosphere let's say at Gamba and that's what attracted uh, me but when I first started supporting them they were rubbish and then two years later they won the league for the first time and I was kind of quite enjoying it when they were rubbish because you know that then the only people that go and see rubbish teams are people who really want to be there right but when they start to be to be good then you get more fans and it, it dilutes a little bit but yeah they've, they've always been my team um, and now they're rubbish again so <laughs> you know we've come full circle so a bit of J-League competition and kit history then. So the first regular season, which ran from May to December 1993, that had two stages, which whittled down the 10 teams to two for a championship game in January 1994. And Verdi Kawasaki beat the first stage winners, Kashima Antlers. In the past, competitions such as the French Cup has used one kit supply to outfit all the teams. But the J-League was the first full league to do so with Mizuno producing all of the kits. That must have been a late decision because all sides had kits made by variety suppliers such as Yokohoma Fugles in Puma, Kashima Antlers in Italian brand NR, but they were only worn in the cup competitions in 1993. In 1997 was when Mizuno's monopoly was ended. Umbro, Adidas and Puma dived in along with whoever the hell it was that made Tokyo Verde's kit that year. Interestingly, Shimitsu Espulse and Jubilo Awata have worn Puma ever since. In 1998, the league expanded to 16 teams and featured a relegation playoff since in 1999, there would be a J2 league. That was also when drawn games became a thing because previously shootouts settled drawn games. 2011 and Kashiwa Race all moved from Umbro to Yonex, who were probably better known for their badminton apparel. In 2012, J2 had 22 teams, which led to the creation of an 11-team J3 in 2014. That year, the longest unbroken run with inaugural supplier Mizuno ended when Terazo Osaka switched to Puma. J3 expanded to 14 teams in 2016, giving us a total of 54 teams across the three divisions. 2021, Mito Hollyhock joined Yokohama FC and being supplied by Claudio Pandiani subbrand Soccer Junkie, whose logo is a French bulldog. Ben, whereas in sort of the UK and Ireland, 
replicas were first for kids and then when those kids matured there was some buy-in from adults it's always seemed that in japan the replicas felt like a mandatory part of the match day attire and it felt, felt like it was that way from the outset certainly when i saw japan play croatia in nuremberg in 2006 there were there were no Japanese fans that weren't wearing an Adidas jersey. As a spectator at J League grounds, is is that a, something an observation you agree with? Yeah, yeah, completely. Even even when I first started going in two thousand and three, I was astonished by how uniform it, it, it was. It it wasn't a small percentage. It was virtually everybody. I mean, Japan. There is a certain element within Japanese society of following the crowd, and so if if most people are doing it it's easier for everybody to to do it and it just becomes the norm and that applies to all, all sorts of things but but certainly in, in football yeah that, it, it makes for a, a brilliant visual sort of the appearance of, of the stadiums on, on tv or, or or when you're there to, to look around because you know if i got a gamber and the, and the stadium is, is blue and black and if you've got a Cerezo, it's pink and if you've got a sean and belmara it's 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 their brilliant green and and, bl- and blue colors and you know this, this happens organically because everybody's wearing the shirts and the fans are extremely loyal and will typically wear the current season shirt as as well you know Whereas may, maybe in the in the Premier League or other parts of the world, because particularly with clubs now bringing out new home shirts every year, not all fans are going to be able to afford it or want to, to buy it each, each time. So you might see a variety of kits from down the years. On the whole, in the J League, it's, I'd say, 80, 90 percent the current season kit and the current home kit in, in particular. So, so, yeah, that's that is quite typical, I'd say, of Japanese supporters. Mm, there's, there's a big culture of pre-ordering by the clubs, isn't there? So the fans pre-order kits. Yeah. So they never gets to a point where they go on sale or where there's a surplus. Yeah. And, and that's probably one of the reasons why if you try and get hold of a J-League share abroad, you, you're paying a lot of money for it because there's no such thing as a end-of-season sale or, or, or markdowns. And so it just yeah. seems to mean that forever, J-League shares really hold the value. They're expensive anyway. This is what really astonished me. I started supporting Gamba and I was a, a student, so, you know, I, I didn't have any income to, to, to speak of, really. And I was like, oh, I want to get a Gamba shirt. And this is 2003, this is 20 years ago, and they were basically £100 for the replica, not the authentic one. But they are £100 then. And they've maybe they, we have a great deal of inflation here. It's mainly it's about that still now. But, but yeah, they, they make them, they open pre-orders and they rarely manufacture much of a surplus and so maybe now in the last few years if you go to Kamo which is the the big football shop in Japan in sort of October November time maybe there might be some if they've really got too many in stock on a little bit of a discount but yeah you you don't get many I mean I I see that you've got lots of football Japanese football shirts in 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 the background there there's there's a guy maybe he's 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 the guy that you're sourcing from called Alan who who runs J League shirts out here who is very very diligent at sourcing uh, current Japanese football shirts to send around the world because I think yeah Japanese football clubs in general have been a little bit slow to realize there is a market outside their own borders for some of these shirts, which are absolutely wonderful. And yeah, well, I, I guess as a result, they hold their value, but it's it's a shame that they're a bit scarce, really. That leads us on to a question for all of us, but starting with you, Ben, how do you feel the J-League um, has had an impact on the kit industry as a whole? 
does the J League aesthetic fit into the polyester pantheon? Well, I think particularly in the early 90s when the J League first started, obviously that was a time for um, mass experimentation within kit design in, in general, right? We went to, from some very conservative designs all the way through the first hundred years of European football history, then then suddenly mass production comes along and, and more designs come along and uh, you can be a bit more fancy with, with what you're doing perhaps. And the early J-League kits, some of them as well, very much hit and miss, I think, just going back the last couple of days and, and looking at the, at the archives. But I think in particular, there was a, a desire when the J-League first started for each club to have a very distinct identity. So, you know, because you're essentially creating a professional league not quite from scratch because they were reincarnations of existing corporate clubs in the main but you're creating new brand identities for from scratch in the 1990s as opposed to in the 1890s and so there was that kind of thinking the kind of the the marketing thinking behind the color schemes behind the mascots that, that we use and having a, a uniform supplier for the for the kits in in early years meant there was very little overlap with with colors and you know you'll notice that there are very few teams that wear white as the in as part of their primary uh colors whereas in instead you have you know some teams wearing bright green some teams wearing pink that that sort of thing so i, I don't know whether that the j league is as a result had any impact elsewhere or any influence elsewhere but i think it has at least created a very distinct color palette which you know when you when you see a j league match on tv for for example it it looks immediately distinctive to to other leagues and then that includes the the fans in the background of course but also the the color schemes of the kits are, are quite different to what you normally get in a in a european environment with a hundred years of history behind it I think that's an excellent point. I think it's something that I picked up on kind of looking into some of the J-League kits it is the use of colour. And that is something that makes it instantly recognisable. Like you say, if you see a clip on video, you know, the majority of kit fans of the world will instantly know that's a J-League based on the colours that are used and the style that is used. So a really excellent point there, I think. And as well, even though you, you do have the major manufacturers involved, it's not all just templates like obviously some are, are recognizable but there does seem to be a degree of um originality or, or individuality with with the japanese club kits and i think we see that with the national team as well like obviously in the 90s the jfa had their own design that they insisted was used by adidas or puma or asics whoever was making the kit at the time and that's kind of carried on in that you'd never mistake a Japan home shirt for a France one. Obviously, there's different makers now, but there's a real distinctiveness to a, a Japan national kit. Even, let's say, in 2002, when Adidas had a very cookie-cutter approach with their dual layers, the, the Japanese ones were still kind of on their, on their own, for want of a better word. You know, they, they had kind of flourishes that the other countries didn't have, and I think that has continued, and we saw in the most recent World Cup two two absolutely brilliant kits that i think were were above most of, of what was on offer from from the other countries yeah just going back to ben's point about you know starting in the 90s that that was an era of design excess wasn't it you know technology had allowed for all over prints and so everybody uh, did them but i think what's fascinating is 
Whereas you look through other leagues, let's take a look at the MLS, which which was created a couple of years later. Sure, they started off with some wacky designs, but they've since sort of cycled through classic stylings, then going back to challenging designs. Whereas I think there's a sort of level of kit busyness that's been somehow maintained. Certainly it does come from the colours. You know, you've got Cerezo Osaka's pink is quite distinct. Uh, Kyoto Purple Sanger's eponymous purple. And yeah, you mentioned Shonan Belmare's that... There's plenty of teams use green or they use blue, but those neon shades together are, are, are incredibly distinct. But it's just the fact that they've you, you can recognise even 30 years on, you think, I know that's a J League shirt before you see the, the J on the sleeve. The J League has somehow managed to maintain a distinct visual language for 30 years. And I think that's genuinely impressive. And I don't know whether that's conscious or, or whether it's just, just happened. It's fascinating. I think the, the J-League first hit my consciousness in about 1995. There was a, a Chinese lad who lived near me and, and he'd gotten a PlayStation from Japan long before the there was on sale in the UK shows. And one of the games he had was called J-League Winning Eleven, And that was yeah. essentially my introduction to to the J League and it had this incredible like Buddhist chanting and like taiko drum beats during the game and the nearer you got to the 18 yard box the more frenetic the music got and you know looking back on it it felt like the time revolutionary the the, the graphics are a little bit naff now um players don't appear to have knees or facial features and the, the game's largely long punts and slide tackles but i just it just introduced me to to these teams i wasn't familiar with and i remember um Toso Scalacci popping up on the screen because it had been signed by Jubilo Iwata. So that was my my sort of introduction to the J League, and it and it it certainly certainly had an impact on me. I can't believe you mentioned him, Les. Too soon, too soon. I, I'm still not over Ireland's 1990 defeat Italy. <laughs> um, but that was that was 33 years ago. We're only going back 30 years, so it's time to start the wheat from the chaff, the Asahi lager from the Super Dry Jackets. Ben, you get to nominate six kits in total, three that you like, and three less so. Okay, well, the first one that I like didn't take me any time to, to think of. This one is just so iconic and is actually chronologically the first J-League kit from the very first game on the 15th of May 1993. Uh, Verdi Kawasaki, who ended up being the inaugural champions, who were one of the initial giants of the J-League, the Big sponsorship from the Yomiuri uh, media conglomerates who also run the, the Giants baseball team who remain the biggest uh, baseball team in the country. But they had the J-League team was based in Kawasaki and they have this wonderful green. It's not quite tie-dye, but it, it looks at it at first glance and then you, you look at it a bit closer and the lines are too straight for it to be to be tie-dye. But it's it's almost it's a kind of a, a blend of that and a blend of the sort of the rising sun flag, only it's all green, different shades of green. And cleverly, the center of the sun, if it is a sun, is the Mizuno logo in, on the, the, the right uh, side of the chest. Then you've got the, the team logo, round team logo on the other side of the chest. And perhaps a little unusually major international sponsors as well, which I think, I think as the JD goes on, we now have sponsors on the sort of the, on the shoulders and things like that. And it, the shirts get a bit crowded as a result. In the earlier J League, you had some wacky designs, but not too, not dominated too much by by sponsors. And I think it fits in quite nicely. The fact that it's green and it's got Coca Cola on the front, it's kind of like 
a Japanese take on the fantastic Palmera shirt of around that time. Only yeah, you know, yeah. So it's a completely clean design and, and remains timeless and iconic. The, whereas this is a shirt that immediately says early mid nineties J League, but yet it's still it's still got that classic iconic look about it. It's like okay, we're 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 doing this. We our intention is to be the biggest club in the country, but we're still doing it in a different way. And that I like about it. I like the fact that the font of the numbering is, you know, there are italic numbers with serifs, which are probably not the easiest to see uh, <laughs> or to read from a, from a distance. And, you know, as a commentator, these are the kind of things that you, you look at as well. But I think they just look nice. And at that time, you know, uh, Kazuyoshi Miura was the star striker for both the, the national team and the and the club team. Rui Ramos, you had Tsuyoshi Kitazara, who is uh, now a commentator I work with sometimes. You know, he had some very iconic faces of the J-League at that time, all playing in the in the same team. And although the club as a result, didn't become what Yomiuri intended them to be because they they moved it to Tokyo a few years later, which completely went against the ethics and the philosophies of, the, of what the J-League was built on. We're, we're, we're not corporate teams, we're local teams. And ever since they've been to Tokyo Verdi, they've basically struggled and have been in the second division for much of it. But right at the beginning, they were the big club. They were the flashiest club. When the J-League was a real big hit in the first couple of years, they were the centre of that. And, and that kit that they were wearing is absolutely iconic. Mm. I am glad that you've mentioned King Kazu. I think um, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Methuselah of football who, you know, in his 50s manages to predate the yeah. J League and is still playing. I mean, is, is he on loan in Portugal still? I mean, yeah, he's on loan in Portugal. I mean, it's it's a little bit heresy to, to say at this, but he's almost he's like a marketing tool as much as anything. Now, he loves what we absolutely love what he said in an interview with. Danny Taylor, the athletic, that he wants to die on the pitch. And, <laughs> you know, I completely believe him when, when he says that. But, I mean, realistically, for any club to be still fielding a, a player of, of that age, as, as good as he always has been and as fit as he, as he remains, you know, there, there's more to it than just what he can contribute on the pitch at, at the moment. But, I mean, he is obviously a legend and still still one of the most recognisable faces to the general Japanese populace in in of any footballer so so yeah I mean those days he was he scored a fantastic goal in the first J-League match I ever went to so I you know I have great memories of him as well I think he's a wonderful player but those days uh, Verdi Kawasaki were, were his peak okay give us another one that you that you like okay this one so I took so long I took an embarrassing amount of time over this because there are so many good kits i know i looked at the yonex cashew Sol shirt that that you mentioned i mean i remember covering that season when they won the league they were fantastic kawasaki frontale with their sort of gremio porto allegre inspired uh blue and black stripes with with the white in between i thought it looked lovely cash has had a couple of good ones my team gamber osaka they have once a year they have a special expo shirt because their stadium is is built in the Expo 70 Commemoration Park, which is you know the World Expo from 1970, and they have various theme shirts based on that. And so there are some brilliant shirts. But the one this is this is the last of the, of the three that I chose, but I'm putting them in chrono chronological order. I finally established, uh, finally settled on this one, which is Kyoto Purple Sanga from 2001 to 2002, and it's 
despite what we've been talking about, it's probably not particularly a shirt that screams J-League. It's a shirt that could be, just except for the purple colour, perhaps, it's a shirt that could be, in terms of its design, from almost anywhere. But it's very, very clean. And it's a, it comes from an era in the J-League, around the time I first started watching, where the initial sort of the 90s really fancy shirt designs started to fade out. And there was a lot of almost unsure experimentation with a bit more traditional designs, and a lot of which were very unambitious or didn't quite work or, you know, they weren't very interested particularly. I thought the Kyoto purple sango shirt of that time, a really lovely purple colour with a black stripe going down from the, the shoulders to the end of the sleeves outlined in a, in a thin white line. It kind of reminded me of the Liverpool away shirt around that time that was white with red on the on the sleeves. There was a Rangers shirt around that time, I think an away shirt that was red with, with blue on the sleeves. The very, very clean lines and just the purple colour from, as you say, the eponymous uh, colour of the pu purple slanger team looks lovely. That plus, it's quite unusual that the sponsor is in Kanji. So the sponsor is Kyocera, which is, um, you know, a a famous global brand they, they sponsored Reading for a while, but usually written in, in alphabet letters, right? And Kyocera is originally short for Kyoto Ceramics. And so they're a, although they're a big global company now, they're originally from Kyoto. So there is a local element to it. And the fact that the sponsor is written in big letters, but big, bold, white kanji, uh, kanji and katakana letters is quite distinctive in that most Japanese clubs prefer to use alphabet letters on, on their shirts. The numbers, big, bold font for the numbers as well, on the front as well as the back. And it's the era that Park Ji-sung played for Kyoto Purple Sanga, which also helps make that particular shirt quite iconic in my eyes as well. I, I actually had noted that in my notes that I had a, a very successful run as as manager of Purple Senga in Championship Manager 0102 with a, a young Park Chi Sung helping us become champions of Asia. But uh, unfortunately, none of their shirts managed to make the cut for me. <laughs> Go on then, give us another that you like, Ben. Uh, my third choice, I wanted to put in a Shimizu S-Pulse um, globe shirt because I think that series of designs is particularly iconic and I've put in one from last season which is not a season that's going to go down in in, in Shimizu S-Pulse fans memories because they got relegated from the top flight in fact the the club's president had to issue an apology yesterday on their official media channels because uh, they're seven games into the second division season and they haven't won any of them and they're expecting to go straight back so they're having a really tough time as a club at the moment but their shirt from their relegation season last season is a kind of a new take on their traditional globe pattern so right from the very beginning they had Shimizu S-Pos were the one team out of the original 10 that were not originally a corporate club. They were a, a local football club. Football is all they did. And they were established as a professional entity with the sole purpose of joining the J-League, whereas the other nine were company teams that were, were reformed. And they had a sponsor early in, in their early years who, who's still a sponsor on the sleeves, JAL, the airline. And so officially, it's nothing to do with JAL, although it must be quite beneficial to them too. They've had 
as part of an idea that they want to take Shimizu to the world, they want to make the name of their of their hometown famous to the world. And so that was the official inspiration for having a global, part of a globe on a lot of their kit designs right from in the 90s. And then that went away for a little while. It was sort of orange and, well, different shades of orange to make the globe or orange and yellow to make the globe. And looking at it now, although very distinctive and iconic, there quite a few of them are quite garish. Then in the sort of the 2010s they brought this idea back but in sort of new modern ways and I think last season's one which is essentially it's an orange base with a camouflage pattern within that as well and then the globe or not quite the globe but just the map of the world or the eastern part of it anyway with Japan and, and China and Australia quite visible as a subtle blend into that camouflage and I thought it's a really nice modern take on a classic very distinctive club design i think it works really nicely the globe image in this shirt you see lots of maps now and this is one of the things that really kind of took me with the design when looking into and researching for the podcast you know maps i thought was something quite new in terms of kit design that you see you've seen you know there's i know inter had one recently i think there's a a, a brazilian team that really exported a, a, a one that's very popular I can't remember the name of the top of my head but actually to see that this design is probably the uh started from this team this must be the first time a map had been using kit design it was something new to me and i found fascinating that you know the design is that far ahead of the game and that they you know this was a key part of the kit through the um through the 30 years of the j league as well it's uh it was an interesting kind of insight and something new that i learned through this yeah, and, and like I was saying earlier about them, Japanese kits being distinctive. This is made by Puma, but you wouldn't look at it and say that's a Puma kit the way you can do a lot nowadays. But they, they seem to have a a particular take each season that sets them apart from the rest. And some people like it and some people don't. But this is, you look at it and it's an S-Pulse kit, not a, a Puma kit, which is, is something I approve of. Hmm. Ben, you've given us the yang. Why don't you give us some yin? Okay. This the first bad shirt is from '98, and it's Nagoya Grampus. Who, you know, if if you grew up in in the UK or perhaps Ireland as well, I don't, I don't know. The first the first you might have seen of the J League, certainly for people of our age, is Gary Lick has gone there. That's why that was why it was known to to me and and to to other people and so Nagoya Grampus 8 were the first team that I I knew of and they you know their early kits were were lovely they their identity was was red with yellow and then white and or black trim and you know these are colors which they're Melchester Rovers colors right and so there there are ways yeah. you design the shirt which is going to look good but you have to be careful that it doesn't come across too garish and in 98 Lecoq Sportif slipped the wrong side of garish for me you've got sort of the paris saint germain style thick red stripe down the middle with surrounded by uh, a thickish white stripe with a thin black stripe in the middle and then a big chunk of yellow on either side and then to complete i don't know what they're doing here is it is it some kind of mondrian effect or, or what i don't know but then on the sleeves you've got a a red square and a white square with black lines around that as well, but not quite bordering it. And it's it's on the players as well. It just just doesn't look good. 
it doesn't it is there's too there's there's not so much going on compared to some of the early 90s it's not it's not a particularly extravagant pattern but yet still they've with so little in terms of design features they've done too much and it just doesn't work yeah i agree fully and it's not helped either then by the is that a kind of a tribal pattern looks almost like a mexican sewn or something a shadow pattern in the the fabric and that yeah it's, it's like a text. Look. okay it like radially arches out doesn't it it does give that like sort of sunlight effect even though it's text yeah that's true it's, it's like sort of gothic lowercase letters um <laughs> saying nagoya grampus h repeatedly yeah and so yeah radiating out from a circle around the around the number on the front of the the shirt i mean that it's only it's only in the background of the of the of the design but yeah that just adds to it it's just it's just there's too much going on in the and the color the use of the color the use of the big big patches of yellow just does not look good it reminds me a little of when catalonia tries to throw a, a supposed national team together yeah. and they're like well you know, if we're not a real country and we're going to have a kit, we might as well make it a bit wacky. It, he's got that aesthetic a little bit to it, I think. If the colours were different, perhaps you could get away with some of the design elements. I just don't think it fits together well. It's also, they seem to kind of borrow from other teams in some of their designs. So we're just looking at some of the history. This is like a Grampus 8 does Ajax kit. And then a couple of years later, they've got the, <clears throat> the deep white, v that everton had in the yeah. mid 80s and and again i think in the 2000s and then there's even a um a sampadoria style shirt recently i think 2019 so it's like they just kind of go into the european market and go well let's try that with our colors and see what it looks like rather than kind of stick into their kind of traditions which we see with some of the other teams i suppose if you've got four colors that you always want to try and get in there somewhere then that lends itself to experimentation. I think sometimes the more the subtler designs, when they've gone for a essentially red shirt and then use yellow as a secondary colour, but use that in a in a subtle manner and then maybe a tiny bit of black or a tiny bit of white. I think that that tends to work. But it's just when they try to use too much of each of the colours is when it 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 can go badly wrong. Mm. That is a good, bad choice, Ben. Do you want to give us another? Yeah, okay. Same season, essentially. Well, it started the season before, so 97 to 98. Um, so this is perhaps where the J-League has, has got past its initial garishness, but is then getting the transition towards more traditional designs badly wrong. And it's when Yokohama Marinos, as they were, as the, were at the time, Yokohama F Marinos now, I think this is their first shirt with Adidas. And Marinos have this lovely um color palette of of, of the tricolor of, of of blue white and and red and essentially the 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 main color for for any of their shirts is 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 blue but then they usually particularly in recent years they've had some lovely shirts very tastefully are able to get both the whites and the and the red trim onto it in this shirt you've got a clash of what would be quite a good design in the first place with Adidas forcing some stripes onto it that are superfluous as, as far as I can see it. So it's a blue base with a thick red and a thick white stripe going down from the shoulders that should, in my opinion, go all the way down. But it stops at the chest level and then the same width of two stripes 
becomes a big thick white stripe with red, blue, red Adidas stripes going down the bottom from sort of chest level to the bottom of the shirt. And you've got two thicknesses of stripes clashing into each other at chest level, then plus Adidas thin stripes on the sleeves as well. And again, there's too much going on in, in a small space. So either stick with the Adidas stripes the whole, on the whole shirt or stick with the thick stripes on the whole shirt, but don't mix it halfway down. Yeah, it's a mess. Hard to know what they were thinking with, with that. There was a way of making that work and they completely ignored it. There's a, there's a training shirt vibe to it. You could imagine France warming up in this ahead of Litonois games. <laughs> yeah, I think I, it, to me, I'd describe it as the manga version of a France shirt. If you saw a, a manga comic, um, particularly, you know, uh, for the World Cup in France '98, this would be what that kit would look like in manga. I think it's uh, it's definitely some French elements, but I've never seen Adidas stripes there, so that's something new. Subassization of football shirts. Okay, give us your last, Ben. Okay, my last bad one, possibly taken on its own, isn't all that bad. It's the Cereso Osaka shirt from 2006 to 2007. But the reason I've chosen it is because of the use of colour compromising their own identity. And they did this for a while. So they their initial kit when they first joined the league was pink and quite bright patterned pink. And in recent years, they've had pink shirts, a solid colour of pink and some lovely designs within that. As, as much as it's you know tough for me, to, for me to admit that as a Gamba fan. But for a while in the sort of the mid 2000s to early 2010s, they were increasingly using navy blue and or black as a secondary colour, so much so that it became the primary colour. And I didn't like this, one, because it's compromising their initial identity, but two, Gamba, their local rivals, play in blue and black stripes. And so although in Japan there is this tendency for all teams to have a white, a white away shirt and to use that in away games regardless of whether there's a colour clash or not. It meant that Cerezo's home shirts made it impossible for both teams to play in their home colours in a derby because they were using too much of the gamba, their, their rival's colour palette on their home shirts. And I just thought if you're going to change your, your identity or your team colour somehow, don't bring them closer to those of your local rivals. When there is a red, when there's initially blue versus pink, there's a really good colour difference, a, a colour gap, I suppose, between between the two. So it just annoyed me. Even though, even now, there's 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 not this this clash anymore. They they still always wear their away shirts in the derbies, and so do Gamba. I think it would just look really nice if you could have blue and black stripes against a, a good bright solid pink shirt and they made it impossible for a while by going too much in the in the gamba colors and i i wasn't having that <laughs> yeah that's a good point in the late 90s when bayern munich changed to a navy home strip for two seasons they still wore special red shirts in the derby against 1860 just to kind of reinforce the fact that even though they weren't wearing it those two seasons they were still the reds so uh, they missed out on a chance to have a special edition uh, Cerezo shirt there. Yeah, yeah, they have. And you know, Urawa Reds are one team that make an exception. When they play away to Gamba or Saka, almost always they wear their red home shirts. 
and it just looks really good. You've got blue and black against red, and as a football match, that just looks looks wonderful. I mean, yeah. I think the the white away shirts, which you have in Japan, and they're usually quite simple designs as well. It's it means that you can avoid clashes without having three shirts a lot of the time, which is which is handy. It means it's easier for for referees to to sort their shirts out. I understand the the practical elements to it, and also. Um, it, I don't know if it's directly, but it, it may as well be directly borrowed from baseball and American sporting culture when there's usually either everyone has a white home shirt or everyone has a white away shirt. Right. And that's been the, the case in, in baseball as well. So it's quite an, it's quite an obvious thing for, for Japanese clubs to maybe want to do. But I think it's nice, particularly if you've got a rivalry between two teams and they were and their home colours are so distinct in the first place that it be, it's, it's nice when they're able to both wear them at the same time. Yeah, a few years ago, actually, like you mentioned, the American sports in the NHL, it used to be colour at home and white away. And then they changed that maybe about 10 years or so ago so that uh, home fans wouldn't just be seeing the same colour matchup every every game. Um, they changed to white at home so that you'd get to see the, the opponent's different colours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And although it doesn't form one of your bad choices, you you wish to, an indulgence to mention a frustrating one. Yeah, I do because I thought about putting this in good, and I thought about putting it in in bad, and it didn't quite fit either. But I wanted to talk about it anyway, and it's the Gamba Osaka shirt. So my team, but from before I was here, from 1997 and 1998, and it should be brilliant, but it isn't quite right. It's it's. Almost, it's essentially the same template, the Adidas template, as they were using for Newcastle in the in their brilliant Kevin Keegan seasons when they nearly won the league 95 90 to 97 with the granddad collar. And so the you know the kit the David Ginola wore and Les Ferdinand wore. Gamba had a version of that, but the stripes are slightly different, but also the collar is two colours, and it doesn't you have to look at it properly to realize that it is the same collar the newcastle collar they had a white collar and then the mid central stripe was also white so the buttons down it were, formed a continuation of the collar and it all kind of fit the gamba version the central stripe is black but the collar itself is white so even though it's the same shape as the newcastle one it doesn't quite stand out in the same way it doesn't have that sort of quite distinctive sort of retro chic look to it that it might have the shape is there but the coloring hides that design element and the stripes i don't know whether this is because it came out slightly later or what but unlike the newcastle edition which i think is an all-time classic the newcastle edition had the adidas stripes going down the sleeve the normal way within one of the stripes on on the arm of the of the newcastle black and white stripe design the gamba one doesn't have it going down the sleeve it has it at the end of the sleeve sort of hooping around the arm and I don't think that look quite, looks quite as nice. I think if the collar, if the buttons down the collar of the Gamba shirt were also white, or perhaps if the collar was black, then the Grandad collar is complete and it and it starts and it works. I think this is something that is almost really really good and just it isn't quite right. I don't know if you guys agree. Yeah, you you you've made the argument well and. A close to good shirt is almost more annoying than a straight out bad shirt. Right. Um, yeah, missed opportunity definitely. So um, we're only going to have four choices: three good and one not so good. So Gav, 
what are your nominations? Okay, so just before I start, I just want to have an honorary mention to the Nagoya Grampus Lake home kit from 1992. As Ben mentioned, this was, for me, was my first insight into Japanese football because of Gary Lineker. It was a Lecoq Sport t-shirt, but there was something quite exotic about this shirt for me at the time. I think it was the number on the front. You know, that was something not seen in club shirts at that time. The name of the team on the front rather than the sponsor. They're all like, you know, interesting. I was, you know, 15, 16 at the time. So this was like, oh, I've never seen this before. So that was something that really kind of drew me to it, especially with the Lineker connection. Um, instantly recognisable, which is something I always look for in kits and, you know, good kits. You know, you, you see this, you know what the team is, where they belong, and also the period with this particular shirt. So a, a great kit, but as it is not officially J-League, I can't nominate it. Um, so my first nomination is for Viva in Nagasaki 2019 shirt something that again we've we talked about it a lot and i mentioned it before is the use of color in j league and this is one of those examples where i think color is used so well in the design of the shirt it's a shirt that's got diamonds in it almost kind of harlequin-esque diamonds which is unusual um i know there's a couple of j league teams that use this but these are large diamonds three different shades of blue but there's a complementing orange diamond um strategically placed that just gives a really nice balance to the shirt it's made by hummel with some subtle chevrons on the lower part of the of the torso of the shirt but just there's just something about it it's just unusual it's just unique um and that's why i think it's a a great shirt and one of my favorites despite the fact that it's got orange squares on it you could wear that against Shimitsu away and it wouldn't clash. And that that's impressive to have that much orange in. Um, there's another team that wear in orange, one with a squirrel as the, as the logo. Is it Omi uh, Adia? Um, yeah. It wouldn't, it wouldn't clash. And that, that's impressive to use that much of a, of a tertiary colour, but it not be an issue for clashing. One thing I like as well is the, the placement of the Hummel Chevrons. Um, it's just a nice mix-up from from how we're used to. Yeah, see yeah. a lot of that with the J League shirts. The placement of brand logos is unusual. We've seen that in a few shirts we've discussed already, good and bad. Okay, my second nomination. Hopefully, Ben will like this one. Is uh, Amber Osaka from 2018? Um, there's a lot going on with this shirt, but that actually doesn't take away from how great it is. It's an Umbro shirt, black and blue stripes. And within those stripes, there's shadow chevron pattern. So when you describe it, it sounds very into Milan, but it's not. There's red trim kind of running through the shirt within the collar, also within the cuffs. But it's also got the umbro taping that I absolutely love. It's one of my favourite elements of any kit. So think Man United 1999 on the shoulders, but this taping just is on the shoulder alone, runs a little bit down the arm, but not all the way. But it's also in the shorts which I think is a, a really nice touch. And the socks as well. So when you see this kit as a whole, the socks are black and blue hoops with a red trim as well. So again, it's just those little elements of red make this kit something different. I just think it's fantastic. Love it. Absolutely agreed. Yeah, that is a beauty. I do like that one. When Gamba won the treble, the domestic treble in 2014, and I think that was the first time we'd had red as a, as a complementary colour on the shirt. And that shirt... Because it was a successful season, that that sort of stay, stuck in in my memory a lot, and I wish we'd have the red more often. But yeah, this looking at it again now, this revival of that in 2018 with, as you say, the the umbro piping down the the sleeves. Yeah, 
you're right. It, it's it's that you can't explain it without it sounding ridiculously busy, but it works so so nicely, doesn't it? Yeah. This crest always makes me chuckle because there's a village team just outside of Hull called Westella and Willoughby, and they've totally stolen that Gamba Osaka oh. crest, and <laughs> somehow it's managed to uh, elude Gamba's intellectual property office. That's I know. Did they include the nine stars too? <laughs> Sadly not. Well, they, well, they might do because um, there's another. There's a team in Hull called Hull Road Rangers, and they're they're essentially folding into West Ella and Willoughby. So Hull Road Rangers did win a few trophies, so they might bring a few stars with them. Uh-huh. Gamber have changed the logo now. Mm. I mean, perhaps you know, in, in similar to Arsenal, you know, you have to protect your intellectual property. So actually, having a more simple logo, as long as you copyright it properly, it, it avoids you. Your intellectual probably been stolen by village teams from from Hull or wherever it was. I, I have to say personally, even as a Gamba fan who's been present for almost all of these trophy wins, I wish they'd get rid of the stars. It's like one is for winning the Asian Champions League. That's fine. Keep that one, or maybe have a, a sort of a, an Italian style system for numbers of J League titles. But for have, having one star for every major trophy you've ever won, I think it only, if anything, it has the opposite effect. It kind of emphasizes that your history is still relatively short, and so you're needing to try and push everything you've ever done to the surface. I think you could be a bit more selective than that. <laughs> My number three choice, so Sagan Pusu from 2014. So a common theme that we've talked about is the use of colour. Um, and this, the colour of these shirts is immediately what drew me to it because it's two colours I've never seen paired together in football. So the base colour is like a baby blue, sky blue with a neon pink detailing. So sounds like it shouldn't work, but absolutely does. And this one is a warrior kit from 2014. Now, Warrior, I honestly believe, have some of the most underrated designs in football kit design of the 21st century. Think Liverpool away kits, very much decisive, but they were different and they stand out and everyone remembers them. Everyone can remember a Warrior Liverpool away kit. And I think this is one of those things that now will fall into that bucket once I promote it loads, because I'm going to share this loads, this kit. It's almost got like a tribal fire design in the neon pink which was very similar to the tribal design that liverpool used as well so i think it's probably within that same design group but it's just stands out it's just great it's just the colors it's you know again when i think of japanese culture i do think of neon a lot and, and this kind of ties in there so i really enjoy that and it's just it's unusual it's unique and these are the things that i love about kids so that's why i'm putting it as one of my favorite I'm definitely on my own on this one. <laughs> no, I, oh, I, like it. I, I like the colour scheme in, in in general. Having the the blue and pink together with the blue, yeah, it's a similar to Napoli blue, I, I, I suppose. But that is the base colour, but with with the trim always pink. I think, yeah, I think it it really works. The pink is is very bright, but there's not so much of it that it becomes garish. I, I think, yeah, their colour scheme is lovely. So give us a bad one, Gav. Okay, so for bad, I am going to go for FC Tokyo, the 2021 home kit. And so something that I've talked about here is the use of design, the use of colour. So the reason this is my bad one is this is just a bog standard template. This is a New Balance shirt, red and blue stripes. There is nothing unique about it. There's nothing special about it. It's just quite boring. It's um, something I think you'd expect to see out of a catalogue. 
um, Sunday League teams. You know, it's just very off the shelf slot A into slot B. You know, it's very simple. There's nothing unique. And they're the things that I don't expect to see with J League shirts. I expect to see something dazzling, something bright, something vibrant, where this this is just, you know, it's just meh. Just this, there's nothing about it that, you know, it just screams average. And that's why I'm saying it's a bad kit. You know, when you get like football shirts on adverts and they somehow manage to not even look like real football shirts. Yeah. It's got that to it. You, This is one by the team that plays whoever the hero player for the MasterCard is in that. Yeah, advert. yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. There's plenty to be said, of course, for quite simple designs, but it's not as if this is harking back to a shirt they'd had in the 50s or anything like that, because they, <laughs> they weren't around back then. You know, this, this is this is just as you say, this is a template shirt off the hangar. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing to it. Yeah, but they said, give us a really bland European design. We want to be exotic. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my eye for Dennis, over to you. Thanks, Gav. Well, blue, white and red... Is, is probably my favourite three colours to have in a, a palette. So it's hardly surprising that I gravitate towards Yokohama F. Marinos. Like Gab uh, with the, the Nagoya Grampus shirt. I wish I could pick something from 1992 because they're away from that time. Was was very nice. It Before the equipment era, Adidas's, you know, they, they, they had some busy templates, but there was very little in the way of originality. But this one... When I look at it, it calls to mind what Team GB wore at the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. There's a kind of a, I don't know, is it a floral pattern or what? But it's kind of like blue and red triangles and, and diamonds on, on the underarm and the rest is just like a France away shirt, basically. If you're looking at it now, what actually looks like an ancestor to the current Japan away. So I would pick that, but I can't. And instead, I'll go for their, their 2001 away, which... Might be accused of being boring. I think it's just the right side of, of classy. It's, it's like the France away colour scheme on the Real Madrid 2000-2001 home design. I think it's just a very good mix of, of white, blue and red. Probably the opposite to what we were saying um, when, when Ben chose his Yokohama one. And then my second choice is also a white shirt. It's the Kawasaki Frontale 2016 away. Uh, I like their home kits when they have the the Gremio style white chalk stripe and the most recent one of theirs to do that was in 2016 and I would have picked it but the Fujitsu sponsor was in a massive black box which just ruined the design a little bit whereas the black outline would have been perfect. The away does also have a, a, a white box for the sponsor with arrows rather than uh, Fujitsu but I don't think it's as obtrusive so you have a bright blue and black vertical stripes down through the crest on the left-hand side of the shirt. The blue one's a bit thicker and they're split by the white. I think it's just a lovely, lovely de- design and well executed. Uh, I like the the kind of the, the baseball style um, neck as well. Usual restraint for a recent Puma kit too. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it doesn't scream Puma. So, you know, I think it's just, yeah, restraint is a, a good a good word to describe it and probably to describe my overall kit design sensibilities. <laughs> uh, and then, like I said earlier, I'd like to have had a, a Kyoto Purple Sanga kit, but I couldn't find one I liked enough. 
And instead, it's back to Yokohama, but the lesser-known Yokohama FC. So this is a sky blue, white, and navy kind of a tricolor, horizontal tricolor shirt. And growing up in Ireland, watching Gaelic football and hurling, I'd be familiar with horizontal tricolor jerseys um, as they're they're not uncommon. We'll say in football they are a lot rarer. Uh, the Sheffield Wednesday nineteen ninety two thousand away springs to mind because I can't think of many others, which kind of shows how how rare they are. This one, I think the colours work well. It's sky blue sleeves and upper chest, white across the midriff, and then navy on the lower part. And that flows into navy shorts and socks, which makes for a good look. And it's not laden down with sponsors either, perhaps because they're in the second tier at the time and not as marketable. But I think that makes for a better aesthetic. You can't go wrong with tonal shirts. They always work. Just, uh, you know, since you've mentioned Yokohama Marinos and, and Yokohama, I just wondered, Ben, if... Yokohama as the spiritual successor to Yokohama Flugels have ever tried to stop Marinos putting F before that part of the name and say that that was ours can you stop using it yeah I mean I think on the whole more Japanese fans tend to accept the status quo because these are things decided by companies and companies are respected and 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 things like, like that. It, yeah, it is a, a strange situation because obviously you had the two Yokohama teams in the original J League, and then Flugels essentially went bust and were absorbed by Marinos. And so the F lives on. To be honest, even though like, so working in in the media and Japan, the Japanese media are very strict on making sure they use the proper names for everything. So it's always Yokohama F Marinos. But you talk to the same guys off air. Nobody says the F. It's always Marinos. Fans, depending on where, who they supported in the first place, may may differ slightly. Um, as for, as for Yokohama F, FC fans, I think the majority of the Yokohama FC fans these days have sort of put the Flugels thing in the past, or or, ha, or haven't been around long enough to to remember it. So it's it's now kind of a, a separate identity. They don't talk about the Flugels days. It's Yokohama FC. So I don't think people mind too much. We don't discuss the F word. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So my bad one is the Nagoya Grampus 1997 home. I mentioned earlier how we don't see a lot of European templates in Japan. This one kind of conforms to that. It's like the Chelsea away from 96 to 98 um, with kind of varying stripes and, and gradients down the chest of the shirt. I think this should work because, like Ben mentioned, red, yellow and black is a good colour scheme. There's no white in this one bar the the umbro logo and and part of the the club logo on the on the the chest but it's it's just a bit of a mess it's like they haven't it's like the gradients have been done independently of each other and they haven't looked they haven't zoomed back out to look at the shirt as a whole it's just a bit of a mishmash where you could have had something tasteful i think i'll throw them a bone by saying they're away from that era which was like the inter away is very nice it's like the angola uh, one from the 2006 World Cup, mainly white with large um, colour blocking, uh, horizontal colour blocking across the chest. And similar to Gav, I do like the 1992 Grampus kits, but I would actually give the white away when the heads over the, the red home. Nice. Les, how about you? 
Well, I've not included it in my three, but I did spend some time wistfully recalling the first G-League shirt I ever owned, and that was a 1997 Kyoto Purple Sanger shirt by Umbron. When you think about how difficult it is and how expensive it is to source G-League shirts in the UK, fairly sure I bought this from All Sports. Must be the, oh, really? wow. the Umbro, yeah. Really gaudy, pinky purple shirt. I remember getting noticed a lot at five-a-side wearing, wearing this shirt. Um, I'd love to have one again, but I might need a slightly bigger size than I did in 1997, that's for sure. Okay, so my three good. So we've we've discussed some elements of, of Schmitzo S-Pulse already, and, and there, there are a few things I really like about the club. One, as Ben mentioned, they were the, they were the only side out of the inaugural 10 that wasn't a repackaged company name. I love the name S-Pulse. It's typically that Japanese way of thinking that I don't think makes sense to Western sensibilities where they've mashed up an English loan word and it, it even though it's an English word, it's used in a very foreign manner. And Because I, I, so, they've used it as sort of S-Pulse, the, the spirit of Shizuoka, and doesn't really work in English, but it, it just works. I, I, we've, we've discussed this too. I, I like the fact that they've, they own that motif of, the, the orange shirts and a form of globe motif. And, you know, the orange evidently is to do with mandarin oranges grown in that region, which is which is a nice local touch. And, yeah, it's clear that the, the globe motif is to, is to do with the airline. But I, I like the fact they, they own that and, the, and they've kept with it when other teams have, have chopped and changed. Yeah, so I, so I like that. So I'm not going to be the old man cliche and say Mizuno 1993, but I am still going to be a bit cliche and go 90s. And it's the Puma kit they had from 1997 and previously the in, in the Mizuno kits all had that like flattened segmented globe print and this was the first one where they just went with a globe behind the the crest the maker's mark and the sponsor and I, I just think it's absolutely beautiful really distinctive at the, at the very least until some other teams join the league wearing orange um I've mentioned twice already about Puma shirts not looking like Puma shirts. I it was only, as you said this, that I actually spotted that this has the Puma logo because the three stripes down each arm made me think it was another German company. Yeah. It, it's it's amazing that this wasn't the subject of a legal battle. It, it isn't full stripes. They're like... No, the little chevrons. They're like dashes, but arrow shapes. But yeah, it is It is yeah. remarkable. That sort of... The, the dashy arrow thing is a motif that appeared on quite a lot of early J-League kits. It's on the uh, Shirezo Osaka kit as well, where the, the white stripe splits the, the pink and the yeah, navy. Yeah. But, but, but they're actually like um, arrow dashes. But you're right, yeah, it really doesn't look like a Puma kit, does it? No. For second choice, I almost didn't include this because I was convinced Ben would. Uh, a shirt that's oh, beloved yeah. of vintage football shirt collectors. No, no, I, I do like it. It was one of the ones that I had on my initial long list for sure. Yeah. So it's Gambra Saka's first J League shirt after Mizuno forcibly replaced Adidas in 1993. Now, Gamba sort of settled into an into a light look of blue and black stripes after 1997. Granted, it's they're not just blue and black. There's a lot of added flair, like, you know, shattered diamonds across the pattern and stuff. But before 97, they tended to use blue and the black was a trim colour. 
and I just felt it was a little bit more more noticeable and a, and a slightly lighter blue as well. So it's got irregular zigzag stripes that start on the shoulders and the end under the sponsor, apart from one of them, which is which which goes a little bit further on. And I remember when I first saw this kit in in the nineties, and it it felt really a radical design. But then we saw the rest of the decade, and but it sort of got softened, I think. And now you look back on it, and you know, it seems to be like a, a real classic that seems relatively simple. And I know I understand the word relatively is doing a lot of the hard work there. But the other thing I love about it is the, the early J League, as I remember from the, the Winning Eleven video game, every club had a manga style mascot. That really made the J League visually distinct. And the mascot was Gamba Boy, which was a, a blue haired toga and cape wearing chat wielding a bolt of, of lightning and I just it really typified the the, the mascots earlier on and uh, yeah it just made the it did have a video game manga aesthetic and it just made the league a bit bit fun yeah absolutely it, it looks like a j-league shirt which I know doesn't probably doesn't sound like it makes sense but perhaps the j-leagueiest um, of j-leagues yeah and, and even even <laughs> using the aerial font for the number doesn't detract from it that much. It, it kind of fits in well with the Panasonic and the, the Mizuno logos. My last choice is the one that I've mentioned, the Sherizo Osaka. It was the second style of home kit they had. Uh, so Ben had mentioned initially they just had a, a simple pink with a little bit of tonal darker pink on the kits. Pink and navy stripes, which is as distinctive of a colour scheme as you as you can get in any league and then it's got these white arrow shaped dashes in between the the pink and navy stripes which give it a vaguely brazilian feel you think of all of those clubs in in brazil where they've got three colours one of them's white stripes that's that splits the others and of course there was a, a big brazilian influence on the early j league you, you think most prominently of zico at cashmere antlers but the the brazilian influence certainly extended you know much much deeper than that one and then on top of this pink navy and white colour where you've got like like uh, an incredibly bright, almost neon green sponsor of, of Nippon Ham. This shirt shouldn't work. I think it does. Ben might disagree. Uh, well, you know, they're, they're my my team's local rivals. So I really, uh-huh. from, from, with my fan's head on, I really have too many nice things to say about them. But even though they have used blue, and this will contradict a little bit what I said earlier about them using a colour from their local rivals, certainly as a colour scheme it, it really does work the sort of I hadn't noticed before that it was elongated chevrons I mean I thought it was jagged stripes but yeah you look at it closely and it is but it's almost like a pinstripe effect separating the pink and the blue and that really works the use of a fourth colour in green as you say shouldn't work but does and um, yeah that that is a, a very good JD kit it's, it's a really good JD kit from sort of that post the early few years not quite using the sort of explosive garish patterns we're sort of moving towards something traditional but we're not quite there yet but the balance is right Mm. yeah it it is it is a good it is a good shirt despite it not being a good team and you were saying before we began recording that gamba fans use this sponsor as a pejorative for shirezo (laughs) fans and and they're not allowed to do so anymore yeah, this became a bit of a of a an incident in 2010 after Cereso got uh, promoted back to the, the top division, the J1 League. So if this is very, very basic, obvious football fan humour, but if you're a team or if you're a 
your rival is a team that plays in pink and is sponsored by a ham company, then calling them pigs is, is not really a huge step to go. So that was in the Gamba fans chance about Cereso. That was the words that, that they would call them. Cereso fans complained about it and it got banned, which is probably a good example of, of how that sort of the rivalries don't work in quite the same way here. It's not quite as much of a standard part of the supporter experience to be insulting towards opponents, even if you're not actually using particularly bad language. But but yes, so um, unfortunately, with about two or three days notice before the first Osaka derby in three years, the Gamba fans were, were, were told you, you can't use any of your pig-related banners, flags or chants anymore. The ultras weren't very happy about it, but I mean, there was nothing that they could do. Yeah. So for my last race, the bad one, I, I've never liked that the fact that Araro Reds have been a bit of a Manchester United tribute band, certainly early on. It's something they've moved away from a little, certainly when it comes to the, the visual side of the club. But, you know, in the early years of the J-League, they were also known as Mitsubishi Urawa Football Club, MUFC. And then in 2005... <laughs> They wore Nike kits and were sponsored by Vodafone. And it's like, you know, I know imitation is flattery, but it felt just a little bit of a step too far, this one. And because there was slight differences in the in the design, in the template design, it just made them look like knockoffs. And I just think, no, not for me. You've got to forge your own identity. You, you, you're playing part of a, a fairly new league. You've got a clean slate and you, you copy Manchester United. To that extent, no, no. I, I actually think I agree with you fully, but I actually think this shirt is slightly better than the one United had because I prefer the symmetry of this one to the asymmetry of the United one. It was completely deliberate. There was a guy in the Mitsubishi management who was involved in the running of the football club who made the conscious decision to call it Mitsubishi Rao Football Club so that it would be MUFC. And, you know, it's, it's OK to have when you're Certainly when you're starting a new league and you're starting a new football culture, it's OK to say, OK, we want to be the Manchester United of Japan. But you're completely right. There's one th- one thing to use that as an example of, OK, we want to be a big club like that. But to copy them to that extent is, yeah, you, you're right. They've, they've shifted away since. They don't highlight that quite so much anymore. They have their own identity now and they're, you know, they're a big club. I wonder if it drew the casual fan who knew Manchester United and kind of pulled them into the to the fold because of that. You know, they could wear their Man United shirts. You know, we've already kind of established the culture of wearing kits to games and that. This way you can wear your Man United shirt and it looks like this shirt as well. So I wonder, is it clever? Is it, you know, I don't know. Tough one. So there you have it. Between us, we've identified 18 of the most striking J-League kits of the last 30 years. Um, There are, of course, many more. And if you use Twitter, we'd certainly recommend two accounts to follow. One we've already mentioned, Alan Gibson of J-League Shirts, does a great job of connecting shirt collectors around the world with J-League kits, which aren't the easiest to source. And there's another guy called Tomo, whose handle is at Ola Piero. His illustrations of J-League kits are a great resource. There's something that I used um, quite a lot to help me identify and research here um, so definitely one to check out and Ben before we go tell us about your range of beers <laughs> well um, they're sold out at the moment we didn't make 
very many. I sort of have a side business with a guy in Osaka. Osaka is very much a merchant town, always has been. And there's this friend of mine who um, insists on trying to use my name as a, as a brand. Says that, you know, this, this brand potential, even though I'm just a commentator and I'm sure I can only have a very, very limited brand appeal, but just we've, he's made some various merchandise related things. But I mean, there's a very small microbrewery right next to where I live. And he suggested he got me in touch with them and said, let's let's make a, a beer. Let's advertise it using my Twitter account and we'll, we'll probably sell it out. And we did. We only made about 200 litres of it. So what, 600 bottles of IPA we made last summer. But it was it was a very nice ex experience. So I was able to go along and meet the brewmaster, tell him what kind of beer I wanted to, to make, give some examples of the kind of beers that I liked. We went along, we, we helped make it on an extremely hot day in August last year and brought it out just before uh, the World Cup. And, you know, fortunately, if you're only making 600 bottles worth, it doesn't take too long to to sell all them on 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 Twitter. And it was it was a good beer. I was I was pleased with the end result. So we're hopefully going to do it again at some point. It's not going to be a lucrative business, but it's always nice to make a different beer. And it's nice to have a beer with my name on it. Indeed. Barry Davis never got his own beer. <laughs> Well, maybe this time, yeah, I don't know. But um, yeah, these these are things that you can do now because craft beer in Japan is is brilliant. And the last two years has been, a, uh, the last 10 years rather, there's been a real boom for it. And Japan in general is very good at observing what's going on in other parts of the world and making a version of it, which is somehow better or somehow Japanized in, in some ways. And so as the local beers in, in this country over the past 10 years have just become absolutely fantastic and you know there were some really really talented people making them i just i just had to go, go along and do what i was told when it came to the actual ma making of the, the beer but the yeah the guy who, who came up with the recipe and everything really talented guy and it was a great pleasure to work with him Ooh. and and your side gamba they struggled a bit last year and they've not the, not made the best of starts this year is it reassuring that yeah. only one side goes down this year since they're expanding j1 next season yeah, yeah, I suppose it is. I mean, we went down in 2013 with a really good team that made a bad mistake in changing the manager. And we managed to go down with a positive goal difference and the highest number of goals scored in the league, which was insane. And it was, oh, sorry, it's 2012 rather. We came back in then 2013, but it was obvious that we were going to. Then 2014, our first year after promotion, we won the domestic treble. Have we gone down last season, as it looked like until the final day we might do, you thought, well, this team, they're probably not going to come back for a little while. They need a big rebuild. We've got a decent new manager in now, but it's not it's not quite working yet. So it's going to be another season of struggle. And I, I don't think we'll come bottom, so we won't go down. But possibly they could do with a year or two going down now to, to reset and rebuild. They probably need the crisis. I think there's a little bit of conservatism in the management of the car, of the club, invested interest, a bit too close to certain agencies and always buying players from them. So it's it's not been particularly conducive to long-term team buildings. So I don't know. I don't know. I like I like the manager. We've got some we've got some good players. We've got an exciting new manager, but it's just something that this chronic problems that we've had over the past few years haven't gone away. And Ben, how many people in Japan do you think you uh, have recruited to support Taunton Town? <laughs> well, 
So yes, I basically abused my position to talk about Taunton Town on television and on Twitter and stuff whenever I can. The professional justification being that it's a good case study into you know how deeply rooted football is, even in a town that you've never heard of. There's these stories going on and these volunteers working for the club and these fans who are passionate. And so people have really liked this and it's it's helped that Taunton have actually been good in the last few years and, and got promoted a couple of times and have done a fabulous job. Um, so I've covered them for TV a few times. I would say now, probably not in terms of you know, absolute hardcore following, but in terms of you know, you know people who would class themselves as, as they support Taunton Town. I'd say the numbers are probably higher than anybody, any other English team from League One or further down. You know, we're not, we're not talking Premier League Championship level, but I doubt there's any teams in League One or below with more followers than Taunton Town. So that's quite nice. <laughs> Excellent work. <laughs> for those who don't get to watch J Sports TV, how, how can listeners have a peek into your brain, Ben, on social media, perhaps? Uh, yeah, so uh, my Twitter account is just my name, at Ben Mabley. I mainly tweet in, in Japanese, to be honest. There are sometimes the odds uh, video I put on in, in Japanese as, as well. I mean, I'm, I'm freelance. I work for five different broadcasters now in Japan. When there's a World Cup on, then... Um, Occasionally, my friends at The Guardian give me a bit of work as well or invite me onto their podcast. So that's when I, when I get to practice my English for, for for work, sometimes a little bit for BBC. But yeah, the easiest is probably at Ben Mabley on Twitter or at Ben Mabley TV on Instagram. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Uh, some very interesting and engaging chat there. Thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. And the Football Kit podcast will return with episode 18. Mizuno. Mizuno. Mizuno.